This is Prairie Miller, and on the show, smashing high culture and low culture together and enjoying the sparks. British filmmaker Julian Temple is on the line from the UK to describe his unique and kaleidoscopic brand of musical documentaries and videos, counting The Stones, Judas Priest, The Sex Pistols, Neil Young, Paul McCartney, and David Bowie, to name a few. And his latest documentary, Crock of Gold, a celebration of Irish punk poet Shane McGowan, composer and lead singer with the Pogues. First, some scenes from Crock of Gold, then Julian Temple. Shane McGowan, the visionary, one of the finest writers of the century. Then they went on a world tour. It was nice to be shy. I don't even think he went away and he didn't come back not the shame that I ever knew and then doctors told me that he had six months to live if I really wanted to die I'd be dead already well, I'm delighted to announce the special lifetime achievement award to Shane McGowan the songs broadened our sense of ourselves. Redemption, sorrow, the ordinary person's story. You were pretty queen of New York City. Are you content with what you've achieved? No, I wanted to more. The boys of the Avalon Pity Choir were singing, go away, play. And the bells were ringing out for Christmas Day. Actually, we're better when we're sober, but it's not as much fun, so we get drunk. I'm in Somerset, which is oh, okay. west of England. Yeah, yeah. Okay, what inspired you to make a movie about Shane McGowan as your latest feature film? Well, I think two things. I mean, I had known him for a long time. Um, not not intimately. I, I My path crossed with him in the punk moment in London, you know, back in the 76, where... Um, you know, one of the actually the first interview with him ever was one that I did with him, which is in the film where he's got the peroxide blonde hair. Um, so I was the first person to, to, to talk to him in, a, in an interview context, and I always knew, uh, that, you know, that he was a fascinating punk specimen in those days. I didn't, I didn't understand. I didn't. I had no inkling that he would go on to become such a central figure in the Irish um, pantheon. But um, so when he asked me to make the film, I I was certainly a tantalizing prospect because his story is such a rich one. It's partly that I saw as an opportunity to educate myself a bit more in the history of England and Ireland as well, which uh, I knew a little bit about, but certainly only a, tiny bit um but uh it was also a challenge you know because he's he, he comes with a warning that he's one of the most difficult uh people to interview and, and collaborate with um you know so many stories of, of that you did it's a bit of a challenge you know to and you have to decide whether you you're up for the for the few rounds you know a few rounds with shane mcgowan means a boxing match as well as um uh, a, a, a night of drinking and, and also ammunition, rounds of ammunition. So, you know, I knew what was uh, about to come, but it, with Johnny Depp on board, I thought we could kind of handle it and we finish the film. And how would you describe your unique concept that goes into making a documentary like this? And what led you on that innovative, creative path? Well, my, my filmmaking style comes from working way back then with the Sex Pistols in the kind of heat of the punk moment where we were all very young and um, the idea was that you didn't have to wait um, 50 years to make a film, um, that you could do it there and then, but the, the downside was you didn't have much money, so you had to you know, smash things together, mash things up, put things that you found from filming the television with moments you'd filmed with the band, for example. So it was very much a cut-up, kind of William Burroughs, punk-inspired approach. And then uh, 
yeah, I developed from there that really, you know, some of the most interesting things about societies are the things they seem to throw away, you know. So I, I, I felt that anything that you could find in the gutter would be as important as what you could find in a, you know, a college library. So it's a matter of, you know, smashing high culture and low culture together and, and enjoying the sparks, really. And using archive, using archive as more of a time travel uh, propulsion and, and just a kind of dry history lesson. I think music and, and film are the nearest we've got to time travel. And what can you say about McGowan's political influences on his music, the IRA? And in one scene, we see him with a book of Karl Marx. Uh well, I think, you know, you, 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 to understand him, you've got to understand that he's an Irish patriot full of contradictions because he did grow up in London and went to an English public school where seven English prime ministers have also gone to school. But you have to see him in the context of the 800, 800 years of strange history between the two countries where England built its empire the first step was conquering Ireland and subjugating Irish people. So his his position on the Irish Republican Army comes from not just the way it's known now. It comes from the early 20th century when the Irish were fighting to uh, for their independence and the Irish Republican Army won it for them. So, you know, it's a complex relationship between that organization, the British Army and Irish people. And Shane has his own take on that. But, um, you know, he, he he's learned through growing up in, in England as an Irish immigrant kid. Uh, and it's his own take. You know, I, I, I have to ask him more about the, the ins and outs of that. But I understand where it comes from. Um Karl Marx, he did go through a period of rejecting his religion and reading, um, you know, philosophers like Marx, I guess. So is that in the context? That's when I think that's the context that he's, he's talking about. He couldn't, he, he couldn't get his faith back, having lost it for a while. But then, then he says that drugs allowed him to get his faith back. And you did go in a different direction from music documentaries with Abanero. What was it about the Cuban Revolution that led you in that different direction? Um, well, it's uh, I, I, I think people who do, you know, embark on experiments to make the human experience a better experience for everyone are interesting. I think that's a very noble um endeavor and one that the Cuban revolution in its beginnings, I think, did set out to do. Um, obviously, it's a fascinating country, and I was making the film through its music as much as anything else, which is one of the great musics of the world is Cuban music. So it was a mixture of all those elements about the island, um, the kind of bittersweet, the hopes of the um, that revolution that got rid of, you know, the most brutal forms of um, oppression that really only Latin American countries experienced. It's about the people's experience of, of how that turned out, really, um, for them. And what can you say about your next film, Sexual Healing, and what led you to your interest in making a movie about Marvin Gaye? Well, uh, I, it, was a, it was a fiction film that um, I was shooting in 2013, and we shot for five weeks and then the the money suddenly wasn't there so it didn't get finished so it's in the past I'm afraid but I, the reason to make a film about Marvin Gaye is just how wonderful Marvin Gaye is and how complex and uh, contradictory like Shane he was you know he's a fantastic figure fantastic music musical presence too you know yeah now you've said that if absolute beginners had been successful you think you would have been found upside down in a jacuzzi in the Hollywood Hills. Please explain. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think it's a bit of a depressing thing to be a cog in the Hollywood machine. And, um, you know, a lot of people have an unhappy time 
as a result of that when they have some success somewhere and then they're inducted uh, as a cog in that that system um and it can have you know <laughs> fallout in terms of your men- mental health and um you know that lifestyle isn't necessarily the, the safest one to follow for, from my point of view i'm i'm obviously being a bit tongue-in-cheek there mm-hmm. um, i'm trying to have a bit of a black humor take on um, the failure of my movie in commercial terms and what would you like to convey about shane mcgowan and also that's new and different about him with your documentary uh i wanted to, to convey the sense that he really has done this on his own terms um you know he's he's never ceded any ground to to anyone he's a very abrasive and very difficult person but he's very true to himself in that regard and um he's running on the energy of all these contradictions that are unique to his life uh but that gives him this great combustive you know energy that despite all the things he's done to himself he's still going strong you know i mean uh, i think he's a remarkable man with all his flaws and all his contradictions all his tragedy and all his triumph uh in this life story is uh is a, is a it, it sheds light on lessons we should all want to try and work out how we feel about you know um the conundrum of england and ireland colonialism in any form you know how that impacts on the people who lived through it and then were descended from it uh how that impacts the music how that impacts the culture how it takes people like Shane McGann to come along and pull it all together and re-inspire re- respect for that kind of culture that's been trodden down on you know i think you can see it not just in irish culture you can see it in 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 many you know, cultures around the world particularly i think africa at the moment is is about to embark on a similar moment that shame was able to kind of kickstart for the irish back in the 80s now you've made films about such a huge variety of musicians would you say there's anything that connects them in any way that inspires you to make films about them well i think they've all been interested in something far far deeper than just commercial success i mean people have heard them and they've obviously made money as a result of their their creativity but i think the creativity is the is the the lodestone for them that's what um i think they have in common that's what i respect about the people i've made films that they haven't compromised you know their search for their personal truth and that that's their main main driving force behind the work that they've shared with us you know which was what makes it special i think and i have one final question the lockdown over in the uk has been quite a thing lately what can you say about it yeah. and how you've met those challenges well it's it's different uh, it's, it's certainly harder the second time round um <laughs> you know i think we're all very fed up with it now right? <laughs> but um the first time it was weird we had the most beautiful spring um you know endless sunny days one after the other for like three months which you never get in england it's normally just gray and raining <laughs> you know so it was quite magical for some you know for people lucky enough to get out of it if you're a single mum with two or three kids in a tower block um not not so good you know but actually the countryside and nature was really coming back in a magical way you know the birds and the animals didn't have to deal with all the cars and the pollution and the noise and the human you know disruption of their lives so they they made a big comeback which was amazing to see um particularly in that glorious sunshine of that amazing spring you know so yeah that was okay this one's a bit gloomier and you know <laughs> the nights are dark and let's get out of here you know uh, we we all want a new world in 2021 don't we don't want to Yeah. go through this for longer, longer and how have you been meeting those challenges yourself well you know in in my line of work you've got to try and have probably 10 projects um <laughs> you know that you're actively trying to get made and and maybe one of them might take 
golf. So I've been, you know, nurturing probably things that will never see the light of day amongst others, hopefully. Um, you know, you try and be creative, but it's a difficult difficult time to set up movies when cinemas are closing and, um, you know, streaming is now the, the, you know, the dominant out there, isn't it, really? Um, so it's all changing very quickly and you, you've all got to adjust to that. But, you know, on the other hand, you suddenly have weird time that you never really seemed to have before to do things and do things like I'm reading a great book about mushrooms you know, um, that I wouldn't normally do probably um, just to get, you know, it's lovely to, to get some distance from, from the work side of things, which lockdown has let me do a bit, you know. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Julian Temple for calling okay, into our yeah. show. Okay. Brilliant. I'm very, very <laughs> pleased to talk to you. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Yeah, bye. And Crock of Gold is out now in virtual theaters. And next up on Arts Express, R&B and soul singer, songwriter, performer, and actress Macy Gray phones in from L.A. to talk about a very different labor of love for her right now, along with her music, My Good, inspired by this Black Lives Matter troubling moment in time, which she describes as her project to support the families of victims of police killing and help to heal broken hearts. Here's Macy Gray to explain. that you've started My Good all about? Um, My Good supports the families who've lost loved ones to police violence. Mm -hmm. And um, so in in the aftermath of of all the stories you hear about on the news, there's, of course, really uh, devastating grief. And um, we're there to help those families get back on their feet. Medical bills, funeral costs. Number one is mental health services. Um, we're not anti-police. It's really just about um, being there for the families and the moms and the dads and their kids and, you know, just helping them get through it. And what was it that led you to want to create a foundation that addresses families affected by police brutality and providing them with mental health resources and financial and legal aid? Uh, just being a mom, you know, when I hear those stories, the first thing I think about is um, the parents, because I know um, uh, someone very close to me lost his son, and I saw what that put him through and what that did to him physically, mentally, emotionally. And um, I think because I witnessed that firsthand, that's the first thing I think about is um, the families. And mm. so... That's that was that's kind of what inspired my good. And what about my good's advocacy, challenging laws, putting pressure on politicians to end excessive police force, and pushing for change such as the passing of chokehold and body cam laws? Yes, we we have a um, 
a social justice arm they're called Truth, Hope, and Justice. Yeah, we have a legal arm called Truth, Hope, and Justice, and they are on the ground fighting for change so to stop so that it can stop happening to families. That that we can stop um, police excessive force by police. And what's up with your music right now and any new directions for you? Yeah, um, I have a new record out coming out on uh, February 14th on Valentine's Day. Mm-hmm. I'm very excited about it. It's a, it's a, um, it's, I, I think everybody's going to love it. And anything you can say about it, like new directions that you're taking your music in? You know what? It's very refreshing. It's very, it's a good escape. Um, it's a nice journey. It's it's just about moving on from here and and looking up. And it's, it's very uh, uplifting and refreshing. And and the music is refreshing. It's not like everything else that you're hearing right now. So I'm I'm excited about it. I think people mm. will definitely dig it. And what is the and name of the album? You know what? We don't have the name for the album oh. yet. We're still figuring that out. Okay. But the music's good, yeah. <laughs> and what about movies and what you'll be coming up in the film Dutch this month? What is that? Yeah. yeah. What can you say about that? It's a wild movie. It's um, starring Lance Gross. And um, got to work. We got it done for COVID. Um, but... um. It's cool. You'll you'll like it. It's a it's a very entertaining movie. Mm-hmm. I'm actually working on a TV show, not not a movie yet, but we've we've been working hard on a TV show. Um, that it's actually we're not. I don't. We don't have a release date yet, but but I do have a TV show coming up one day. Mm-hmm. And what and what did it mean to you to be part of for colored girls with? all those dynamic women, and being directed by Tyler Perry? It was it was a, a huge uh, learning experience for me because uh, Tyler is so um, driven and so focused, even at this level of his career, and he's very tenacious, and I've just never met anybody who's so clear on getting to where he wants to go, even if it's just finishing a scene or and he's just right there there's no like um it's very intense like he's he's just right there he's gonna get it done and and you just feel that all over the set and um it makes you want to do better and it's very you know contagious and it's it's cool he's just so focused mm-hmm. I, I haven't seen anybody like that before mm-hmm. And how do you feel you've been affected by this Black Lives Matter moment in time and its effect on you personally, politically, and creatively as a musician? Um, it's definitely been a, a, a good news uh, this year um, for, for just thought-provoking and, and making people reflect and think about themselves and their lives and their surroundings. And that, of course, if you're an artist, that turns into songs and arts and books and movies, you know. So it's been very good for the arts this, this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I say I think Black Lives Matter is, is important, and 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 uh, I hope people understand what what that's all really about, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, it's it's a lot going on. I mean, we could talk about this year for the next. Years, you know. <laughs> yeah. But it was, in, in its own way, I think it uh, kind of needed to happen. You mm-hmm. know, everybody had to rethink and re restart. And, um, you know, people who made it through, you, you got to find out how tough you are, you know, and, and that, that you actually can do it. You know what I mean? So it's, it's an interesting time. Now, I, I wanted to ask you, I hear that your name came from a mailbox name you saw as a child that intrigued you. Have you ever been contacted by that Macy Gray? (laughs) 
Yeah, he hit me up after uh, after my first record came out. He started doing like uh, people started interviewing him on like local news and uh, stuff. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And so we we talked for a minute. Yeah, he's an upside. Okay. I have one last question. When Macy Gray looks in the mirror, what does she see? Oh gosh, no. Um, right now, I'm really dealing with like getting older. I turned fifty-one this year, and you know, I'm just like dealing with that. Like, oh God, you know, like <laughs> things are changing, and and uh, just feeling a little different physically. So that's you know, I guess every girl. to our show and I will get the word out about my good and your new album. Please do. It's giving to... Thank you. Mygood.org. All your donations are so appreciated. Thank you so much. Okay, bye. And happy holidays. Okay, bye-bye. And again, information about my good is online at mygood.org. And coming up next on Arts Express, Bro on the Global Television Beat, and what's up with Ethan Hawke's unconventional, equal parts tragic and absurd incarnation of abolitionist John Brown in that TV series, The Good Lord Bird? My name is Captain John Brown! This is Bro on the Global Television Beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode, Brown as Buffoon and the Good Lord Bird. While the last two episodes of Ethan Hawke's recounting of the John Brown story have some emotional resonance, the series as a whole, derived from a National Book Award-winning novel by James McBride, is a postmodern mocking of Brown and Frederick Douglass. John Brown's incendiary raid on Harper's Ferry in 1859 was the event that precipitated the Civil War, which ended up bringing about the end of slavery. Hawks Brown is quite a different figure. He mistakes a young freed slave Henry for a servant girl and has him parade around in a skirt until in the end Brown turns the charade into an LGBT acceptance moment. Brown is seen mostly as a raving lunatic, compared by Hawks to Shakespeare's Lear, with Hawks for much of the series playing Brown as he attempts to free slaves in Kansas as Lear's mad scene on the moor. In episode two, he shows up at the end to rescue Henry, who he calls Onion, rambling insanely with guns ablazing, turning what was an astute description of racial exploitation from the point of view of Henry and the other African Americans in one canvas town into farce. Equally, David Diggs, so powerfully dynamic and scene-stealing as Jefferson and Hamilton, and so resolute as the revolutionary and snowpiercer, as Frederick Douglass gives an over-the-top, wild star turn to the point where Diggs and Hawks in the same room as Douglass and Brown are simply trying to upstage one another, with both speaking past each other and simply projecting their own star quality. Douglass's later bromide about the camera, I am enamored of the device and the device is enamored of me, supposedly a slight on the publicity-grubbing aspect of the black abolitionist leader, is in this series simply a description of the egos of the two stars. Hawks' performance and engineering of the series suggests once again that Hollywood intellectual is simply an oxymoron, with the emphasis in this case on moron. 
But there's something deeper and more problematic at work here. Rather than a postmodern debunking of these legends, Hawke's performance fits neatly into a representational history of John Brown, a figure who causes liberals much anxiety. Brown's quest to wipe out slavery is indisputably seen by an intellectual elite as just, but his violent methods, since he claimed that slavery would not end peacefully and that believers must take up arms to oppose it, apparently still causes liberals fits. Here, using the postmodern cover, once again that anxiety is expressed as Brown being a full-blown raving lunatic, even though history proved him correct. This is Bro, on the global television beat, Breaking Glass. And now on Arts Express, Withdrawn Arms, a documentary capturing the historic moment at the 1968 Olympics when champions Tommy Smith and John Carlos gave defiant black power salutes in protest against U.S. racism, fueling the movement and paying the price. Jack Shalom in a conversation with the filmmakers. 1968, black athletes were expected to perform and shut up. We were dealing with racism. We were dealing with not having a voice. Running became my voice. I knew something had to be done. My next move would be immortalizing history. He gave us all hope so I too can do something. That's a hero. Is patriotism protesting oppression? Or is patriotism blind allegiance despite everything? It's a whole different thing to square up with white supremacy. Change doesn't happen in America without loss. After that Olympics, he was ostracized from society. When I returned home, the only job I could get was washing cars. One day, a car pulled up. They were FBI agents. Tommy was a victim of a fear of radical thought. Tommy's dreams had to be altered because of that gesture. It destroyed what I loved, running in my family. I hit rock bottom. I needed someone to hold a hand out. I did not recognize him. I said, there has to be a change. That history is happening right now. How can we not let ourselves neglect the next Tommy Smith? The work that Glenn and Tommy have done is brotherhood. It doesn't matter who you are, we're all in this together. For 50 years, people have been putting words in my mouth. That fist meant pride. It meant strength. It means togetherness, one as a nation. Howard Cosell reporting from Mexico City. Tommy, would you explain to the people of America exactly what you did and why you did it? First of all, Howard, I would like to say I'm very happy to have won the gold medal here in Mexico City. The right glove that I wore on my right hand signified the power within black America. The left glove, my teammate John Carlos wore on his left hand made an art, my right hand to his left hand, also signify black unity. The scarf that was worn around my neck signified blackness. John Carlos and me wore socks, black socks without shoes to also signify our poverty. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. In 1968, the winners of the Mexico City Olympics 200-meter sprint, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, stunned the world when they stood on the winner's stand, and as the star-spangled banner played, they raised their black-gloved fists in an image that was destined to be remembered around the world and through time. Glenn Kaino, a noted artist, and Afshin Shahidi, a noted cinematographer and photographer, have documented the meaning and enduring repercussions of that moment in a new documentary about Tommy Smith called Withdrawn Arms. I'm happy to be speaking with the co-directors of the film. First, Glenn Kaino. Hi, Glenn. Hey, how are you doing, Jack? Great. And next, Afshin Shahidi. 
Hi, Jack. How are you? I'm great. Well, great. we can't see each other. We're all in separate places. So just jump in as you feel prompted to reply. The story that you tell in this film has its key moment during the 1968 Olympics. But 1968 was an extraordinary year by any measure. Can you give us a sense of what was happening in the world and the U.S. aside from the Olympics that year? Yeah, so I think that in 1968, the world was vocalizing the need for change and for different acknowledgments of parity and, and justice in newfound ways. And that was happening across the globe in, in France and in, in the U.S. and in Mexico City, all around the world. There were events and, and moments where people were rising up against different types of regimes that, that had enforced structures that were more authoritarian. And you know, it was contagious and it was happening, mm -hmm. happening globally. Well, so at this time, there's also this outstanding track team at San Jose State University. Tell us about that. Who was on the team? Obviously, Tommy Smith uh, and John Carlos were two of the runners that came from San Jose State. And I believe Lee Evans also was at San Jose State. So uh, it was pretty impressive that, that there were three runners from, from the same university that qualified for the Olympics. And even before those October games began, the, the Olympics were the subject of a lot of controversy and political activity, which centered at San Jose State. Can you talk a little more about that? There was a movement, um, especially by the black athletes, because this was all happening uh, against the backdrop of, of civil rights in the United States and all the turmoil that, that we were speaking about earlier. And so the athletes, uh, specifically the black athletes, were considering boycotting the Olympics as just a protest to the fact that they had no equal rights or civil liberties, uh, but were still expected to go and, and perform uh, for the country and then come back to the same conditions. And so it was a real movement for a boycott by those athletes uh, of the Olympics. It was a very special Olympics in the sense that it was the first that was broadcast live. And Tommy Smith had to run the semis and finals on the same day, didn't he? Yeah, and actually he was injured in the semis and had to not only recover but perform shortly thereafter. Uh, it's important to also note that you know Harry Edwards uh, was a, a scholar at San Jose that really played a pivotal role in creating what they called at that time the Olympic Project for Human Rights. That was the coordinated action of a lot of the athletes you know, going in to create the considerations for both the boycott and the subsequent um, protests that happened you know, by many athletes during the Olympics. Going further on that, at one point, sort of at the last minute or in the last month, it was called off. Yeah, yeah. So, so for months beforehand, there were a series of student assemblies, gatherings with the athletes, with students, going so far as to you know, suggest and create momentum for a very large boycott of the black athletes during the Olympic Games. At the last minute, they decided to participate, uh, but they also decided that they were going to all, you know, carry with them to the games the spirit of the boycott, and then have that manifest in action, uh, in in however way the athletes how they felt that they wanted to express their consciousness as part of the Olympic project for human rights uh, at the games. Mm -hmm. Fortunately for Tommy Smith, he came in first place. John Carlos came in third. What about number two? Uh, number two was an Australian athlete named Peter Norman, who was, a, who was also a very fast man. Peter um, was uh, an ally of, of the two men, of Tommy and John. He was. You know, on the way to the victory stand, uh, Peter decided to wear a pin in support mm -hmm. of, oh, uh, of, the, of the other athletes, and he did mm -hmm. that. And, you know, for that gesture of uh, camaraderie, he paid a very significant price as well. When he went back no to Australia, kidding. he was also um, suffered a lot. Just him wearing that pin brought with it uh, a lot of consequence for him as well in his native Australia. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, he, he passed away a few years ago, but I believe that both Tommy um, and John uh, were at his funeral and, and potentially yeah. Paul Bears, is that correct? They were the, they were the Paul Bears, yeah. Yeah. So, no, so they, that, that moment connected them you know, for, for a lifetime. Wow. Did Tommy ever mention if, if say, Peter Norman had won and they were playing the Australian national anthem and he came in second place, would, uh, would he still have done it? I don't think Tommy Smith ever considered not being first place. 
<laughs> he well was said. the fastest man in the world, right? He had held the world records up to then. Yeah, he had he had he had broken thirteen world records and he had held simultaneously nine. So I don't think there was a version of that where he felt that he was gonna not win. I mean, I think that the the first time that probably came to his mind was when he hurt himself in the semis. But even then, if you watch that race, he wills himself to win in the last four seconds of that race. And you know, I, I don't think that second was ever a, a consideration. Yeah. Uh, it, it was like divine intervention, like you said. I mean, just a <laughs> hand came and just you know pushed him along. Well, so here we are. Tommy and, and John are on the stand. They've got their arms raised. They also, people don't mention this too much, but they've, they're not wearing shoes and they're wearing black socks as well. Yep. And that had a symbolic value. How did the Olympic audience react? At the stadium, it was a resounding um, disapproval. And uh, as Brent Musburger says, he's never heard more booing it was not looked very highly upon by the majority of audiences. Now, we talked to a lot of people that that were alive and witnessed that. And for some, it was a really proud moment. And so there was this kind of dichotomy of views in terms of, you know, what they thought the protest meant and, and how people took it. And one of the people we interviewed, and he's not in the film, but, you know, something that he said that, that kind of really touched me, he said, we all stood a little taller and, and, and walked a little taller after that. And what happens for Tommy in the next few days and months? They uh, well, they got summoned um, to the you know the U.S. Olympic uh, headquarters down in Mexico City. They were asked to bring their medals um, with them. I think the expectation was that they were going to take their medals away, which which Tommy says we were not giving up those medals. <laughs> uh, but they were unceremoniously kicked out of the Olympic Village and and out of uh, Mexico City. Um, and were returned back to the, to the United States, back to San Jose. And back to San Jose, there was nobody there waiting for them, no one there to um, cheer them on, nothing. So they, they came back to uh, emptiness. And while other Olympic stars of the time are getting big endorsement deals and their face plastered all over cereal boxes, what happens with Tommy? When Tommy returned back from Mexico, he was met personally with a lack of opportunity, you know, and really a lack of a foothold to build a career in and a, and a life for himself. You know, his family was also really, really shunned and uh, treated, you know, in a very hostile way. And so he was effectively blacklisted and ostracized, you know, from not only the sports community, but really, you know, uh, the communities at large. And you, you show in the movie that he was also the victim of some vicious FBI and probably COINTELPRO harassment. Yeah, that, absolutely COINTELPRO harassment. In the film, Lonnie Bunch says change doesn't happen in America without sacrifice and loss. Well, that's that's not very different from what happened to Colin Kaepernick, is it? Uh, the difference was, um, and this is not to take anything away from Colin, because I think his protest is really important. Uh, he has a huge platform and had a had a career uh, and right. went into this protest knowing what the cost could potentially be. Uh, Tommy didn't even have a chance to start what you had described before, the expectation that you would come back with a gold medal and have endorsement deals uh, and all that. Um, the importance of the protest for Tommy, and, and he said it in kind of the really charming way, take one one needle out of the haystack to make the stack lighter. Um, which I thought mm. was really a poignant way of saying it. Mm. Tell us about Tommy's upbringing. So Tommy was born in Texas. He moved to California in a uh, sharecropper's situation, and he, he was in a labor camp where he had to pick cotton uh, in order to get off the camp, in order to settle. His family ended up settling in a, in a small city in Northern California. He had, had uh, 12 brothers and sisters, and he was pretty much in the middle he had an older sister, Sally, that unfortunately passed. That that was the apparently the only one in the Smith family could beat him in running. Mm. And I think to to add to that in regard to the empathy and, and which then carries forward into why he was willing to make the sacrifice he did, at, at a young age that empathy even carried over to inanimate objects and, and Tommy describes picking up, you know, a broken uh a, a license plate or or a half a glass or something and bringing it home. And putting it under their porch, just so those items, those those inanimate objects, wouldn't be lonely by themselves out wherever he found them. Oh my god! 
Wow. <laughs> well, that's interesting because I was just going to ask about his third wife. He had a turbulent time economically and psychologically, but his third wife seems to be this amazingly compassionate woman, Delois. And Delois works on granting Tommy his three most important life wishes. Now, I don't want to be a spoiler here because this is such a wonderful part of the film, his entrance into the Smithsonian. Tell us about that. First of all, it's important to know that she she met him and they started dating before she had no she had any idea who he was. Um, mm-hmm. She started dating him, and then one of her friends said, "You know who you're going out with?" Yeah. And she had no idea, which was which was you know a testament to the the authenticity of their chemistry and and really their their spirit. He, you know, they did have a bucket list and a wish list of things they wanted to accomplish, and she was very clear to 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 us about what those were. And and in fact, we were able to accomplish many of them, uh, and one of them, which is getting in the Smithsonian. And we were able to also uh, contribute some of Tommy's artifacts into into that uh, presentation. Great. Much as the film is about Tommy's life, it's also about Glenn's statement that a single image has the power to change the world. You know, when I mentioned the film to a friend, she ran up into her bedroom and came down with a button with a photograph of the image of Tommy that she had treasured for a long time. That image had stuck with her all this time. So, you know, images are so powerful, as you say. Yeah, where that statement comes from is is I'm a I've always believed that art has the power to make change. And I feel that art can create the circumstances for impossible things. Uh, to happen. Whatever that image meant to you, there's a reason why people saw that image and then saved that button for, for 40 years. And and I think that all comes from the power of Tommy, you know, in that case, crafting uh, an image that became a symbol that then allowed for people to explore their own imaginary world of what the world could be through that image. And that that's what I think the power of art is. You created a number of artworks inspired by Tommy, and I know you you had a show, uh, a museum show. When you see Tommy respond to your art, it seems to have almost a healing effect on Tommy, especially this uh, artwork you created called Bridge. Tell the audience about that piece. So Bridge is a 100-foot-long sculpture made out of 200 cast arms of Tommy's arm that are hung horizontally from the ceiling. Uh, and the entire shape is the form of a of a sine wave or a spine. It, it sort of appears to at once be a vertebrae or a backbone, but it also a wave. And in some cases, it looks like a signature. And it's all all made from Tommy's arm. And the intention, you know, of it from a conceptual basis was to, you know, think about connecting, you know, the past and the present, connecting different types of people to show that behind one salute. There are many salutes, uh, but also to connect it to Tommy's distinct uh, uh, physical moment of running a 200-meter race because each one arm is about a meter long. And, you know, so there's a lot that went into that. And, and indeed, I think a couple things happened when Tommy engaged in the art-making process with me. One is that it was a, a healing where he, he got to see he got to see his arm. He got to see that symbol from the perspective of all of us. I think all of that was very healing because what it allowed for him to do as a very silent person growing up, it allowed him to realize that this form of expression that he had been responsible for, he actually throughout this process, I think, really understood that he he was speaking without using his mouth. He was speaking through his own actions in, in, in many different ways. Yeah, I love that. Tommy says, my running became my voice. I mean, that's that's what an artist does. Yeah. I mean, tries to find a voice, always trying to find the voice. I'd like to talk about one other artwork that you created. You say in the film, Glenn, that that salute, it flattened the man that made it, which I thought was a, a very interesting quote. And you created a very powerful sculpture of Tommy called Invisible Man, also the title of the famous Ralph Ellison novel. Can you talk about that? Um, from a physical description for the listeners, uh, Invisible Man is a life-size cast monument of Tommy Smith. But in the uh, and so from the back, it appears to be Tommy raising his fist in salute. Um, when you turn around and and, and walk around it um, from the front, the, it has been cut in half, and the front face is a highly polished steel front that is reflective, and 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 by that nature. 
brings in the world around it and it appears to mostly disappear in plain sight from your vantage point as the audience walking around it. Um, you know, in a world right now, particularly this year where we're seeing finally this notion of how monuments exist, mm. we find that not only do people perform it by watching it disappear, they end up standing in front of it and looking at themselves reflected in the outline of Tommy. And, oh. and, and in case they all, you know, put up their fist and salute as well and take selfies or figure out how to, how to see themselves in Tommy's image. And I think just that creating a moment for an audience member to walk up and literally see themselves in his image brings out from that literal moment a very poetic metaphoric gesture for 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 all of us it's a wonderful movie it's filled with touching and provocative moments how can listeners view it uh the film is is currently on stars so if if you subscribe to stars you can watch it there or on their uh on-demand platform great thanks so much glenn and afshin thank you very much jack thank you jack I've been talking with Glenn Kaino and Afshin Shahidi, co-directors of the new documentary about Olympic star Tommy Smith called Withdrawn Arms. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. They say the games are sports, not politics, something separate and apart from the realities of life. But the black athlete says... He is part of a revolution in America, a revolution designed to produce dignity for the black man, and that he is a human being before he is an athlete. He says his life in America is filled with injustice, that he wants equality everywhere, not just within the arena. He says that he will not be used once every four years on behalf of a group that ignores what happens to him every day of all the years. He says he earns participation, wins fairly, and that he will use his prominence earned within the arena to better his plight outside of it. He's aware of backlash, but says he's had it for 400 years. Howard Cosell reporting from Mexico City. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, expression in the arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station. Wake up all the builders, time to build a new land. I know we could do it if we all lend a hand. The only thing we have to do is put it in our minds. Surely things will work out, they do it every time. Change again, change again, just you and me. Change again, change again, just you and me. Change again, change again.